0: I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Rebecca. We're not from Memphis, but we love it. Welcome to Memphis Type History, the podcast. All right, Caitlin, what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about ladies again,
1: because it's uh, another round of ladies night.
0: Yeah, we really enjoyed finding some history of some spectacular women in our first ladies episode that we wanted to keep it going. So we each picked a new one.
1: Yeah. Oh. And this Ladies Night episode is in honor of Black
0: History Month, the month of February. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? I don't know who your lady is. Sure.
1: I'll go. My lady okay. is Elizabeth Lizzie Douglas, aka Memphis Mini.
0: Memphis Mini. M-A-N-Y? Yeah. Memphis Mini. M-I-N-N-I-E. Oh, Mini. Like Minnie Mouse. Yeah.
1: Okay. So Elizabeth Lizzie Douglas was a blues guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter, and she recorded about 200 songs from the 20s into the 50s. Oh, wow. And she became known as Memphis Minnie, and I'll get to that in the timeline of things, how she got the nickname. Uh, she was also called the most popular female country blues singer of all time and was known for playing and singing as well as any man. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, so of course I love her for that. Yeah. Uh, Lizzie was born in 1897 in Algiers, Louisiana, and she was the oldest of 13 siblings. Her parents nicknamed her Kid, which is a (laughs) nickname she even used into adulthood when she first started performing under the name Kid Douglas. Her family moved to Walls, which is south of Memphis, for those who aren't familiar. Uh, They moved to Walls when she was seven years old, and in the next year, she got a guitar for Christmas. Mm Mm-hmm. And by 10 years old, she could play the banjo, and she started playing guitars at parties by
0: age 11. Wow. Young one.
1: Yeah. So living out in the country, she was exposed to the music that was played at field parties and things like that. And then the proximity to Memphis is important, because in 1910, when she was 13, Lizzie ran off to live on Beale Street. That's the
0: way to do it. Yeah, that's where the music was happening. So to Beale Street, she goes. Yes.
1: Yes. So she started playing on street corners, and she would sometimes go back to stay with her family for short stints when she got low on cash. So I guess that means they were fairly supportive of her doing this. I don't know. I mean, she came and went. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. back in those days, becoming a musician was really one of the few ways to escape a life in the fields. And so really like her other options were domestic service or physical labor, like on the farm. So Mm -hmm. she was very good at making music and turned to that. Someone like Lizzie at that time, so this would be like the average way to be doing it, would be playing anywhere and everywhere. So, you know, you got to think back then there wasn't like recorded music everywhere you went. So anywhere there needed to be music, it had to be an actual person playing. So it was work camps, traveling shows, house parties, street corners, businesses, that sort, all that sort of stuff. She might be paid in money. You know, making maybe a few hundred bucks for a really big gig, or what was more often would be a small item of food. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. Maybe like a can of beans or something, something like that. Okay. So after a minute, she partnered up with Willie Brown, who is most famous and well known for working with Charlie Patton. So in 1915, they headed down to Bedford, Mississippi, which was apparently some kind of resort town. And they played oh, on, okay. I know, I have no idea. I Googled it to look at it now and I don't, Bedford. I don't know.
0: <laughs> it didn't look appealing to you? Like, let's pack up the suitcases and hit Bedford. I
1: you guess maybe it remote. was, I mean, it looks like now people go there for vacation, but maybe like back okay. then it was like resort level vacation, but basically they played <laughs> on ferry boats that took tourists around on Lake Cormorant. Cormorant? I don't know how to say it. So that was okay. it. Okay. Yeah. then next because you know i like women who do a lot of do a lot you know uh my evelyn estes was my last pick right for ladies night a lot of spontaneous moment Uh uh-huh so Minnie joins up with the ringling brothers circus most likely out of clarksdale And she tours with the show from 1916 to 1920.
0: Wow. She liked the circus.
1: Well, back then, like dancers, vaudeville performers and street musicians like Minnie, that they could do pretty well in the circus. And so her time there probably actually helped her become a better performer too. And so she really was able yeah. to create her persona and her act and all of that through her time at the circus. Oh,
0: yeah. Now, does she perform with the band or is she just like one-woman act?
1: Unfortunately, I couldn't, fi- I couldn't figure out what she did in the circus. I really wanted
0: to know. I know, right? Yeah. Maybe she did, um, Maybe she tamed lions while she sang. That would be an act worth seeing. Like if you, What if you could sing lions to sleep?
1: Yeah, I was about to say, what if she sang them lullabies and they went to sleep? And that was like the end of the show, <laughs> and then a fat lady. Yeah, came I'm going to go with sang. that. Uh huh. <laughs> so around 1920, she went back to Bill Street. She worked as a guitarist and a singer, and as was common for women musicians at that time, she supplemented her income with sex work. It's believed that she married her first husband, Will Weldon, sometime in the early 20s. In 1929, she started playing with Wilbur, Kansas Joe McCoy, who was a blues singer from Mississippi, and who also became her second husband. One day, when they were playing for Dimes in front of a barbershop on Beale Street, a Columbia Records talent scout discovered them.
0: Ooh. And she became a star?
1: Uh, sort of. They went off to New York City, and that's how they got their <laughs> nicknames, Kansas Joe and Memphis Minnie. The Columbia Records oh, gave them those nicknames. That. And they started recording okay. duets together.
0: Oh, cute.
1: Yeah. One of the songs they made before divorcing in 1935 called Bumblebee became one of Minnie's most famous songs, and she go on to record five different versions of it throughout her career.
0: The relationship didn't last?
1: Well, no. The rumor was that one of the reasons that they divorced was uh, McCoy was really jealous over Minnie's success.
0: Ooh.
1: Poor fragile man. <laughs> Um,
0: Didn't like not being the star. I guess not.
1: Uh, one thing I also thought was real interesting is that Minnie presented a really elegant persona to the public, very feminine with expensive dresses and jewelry and stuff. She was actually yeah. super independent. She chewed tobacco, which we should actually spit on stage without missing a beat. And she <laughs> could be pretty aggressive. Wait, she, she would chew while be. she was singing? Yes. She
0: would be really? singing,
1: chewing tobacco, and spit without missing a beat. Yeah.
0: Oh, my.
1: The stuff of legends, <laughs> Memphis Mini is.
0: That's impressive that you can be ele- sophisticated and have that gift of chewing tobacco elegantly while still holding a tune. <laughs> I've never seen that done.
1: Uh, me neither. One quote by That I saw from blues musician Johnny Shines said that any men fool with her, she'd go for them right away. She didn't take no foolishness off them. Guitar, pocket knife, pistol, anything she got her hand on, she'd use it.
0: Oh, okay. Watch out, Minnie.
1: So next, Minnie went to play clubs and record in Chicago, where she frequently bested other musicians, men, of course, at cutting contests. Which were like uh, challenges, like like, like a, a dance off, but but a sing off, sort of. Yeah, like a music yeah. off. Yeah. And that helped her get very popular and caught the interest of recording studios and record labels that she was so good at winning these cutting contests. That's cool. Yeah. In the 1930s, she went on tour for a good bit around the South. In 1939, she married her third husband, singer and guitarist Ernest Lawlers also known as Little Son Joe, and began recording with him. She was a finger picker throughout her career, so there's a little music fact for the music people listening. And many musicians find her earlier days the more inspiring and innovative of her work. Um, all of it's good, but that's apparently musicians really like that the first stuff she used to do. In 1941, yeah. Minnie had started playing the electric guitar, which I thought was pretty oh. cool. She also got her first hit, Me and My Chauffeur Blues. In terms of her music, it was really often taken from her personal life and related strongly to the lives of Black Americans, which really influenced a lot of the musicians that came after her. And especially being in Chicago, uh, she really did influence a lot of musicians because a lot of Black musicians came up through Chicago. Some Mm -hmm. names of people that you know, would have been in her clubs and who knew her and were influenced by her music in the 40s are like Muddy Waters, people like that. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the late 40s, the music scene was changing a lot and many didn't really keep up with trends uh, in terms of like the music she's making and stuff. So big labels stopped recording blues artists. Uh, she moved on to smaller labels and then her health started failing in the 50s. In 1957, she moved back to Memphis with her husband after she had a heart attack. She played some and appeared on the radio, some to encourage young blues musicians in the area. I think she played, I think her last show was like a, a benefit or a tribute or something to a friend of hers or something like that. So she really didn't do a whole lot once she got back because of her health. In 1960, she suffered a stroke that put her in a wheelchair. Her husband died the following year, and then she had another stroke after that. Uh, I thought it was really special that a bunch of her fans started sending her money to survive on because there was a news article that said her social security wasn't enough to support her.
0: Oh, wow. And she had her fan base that helped her.
1: Yeah, she meant a lot to a lot of people. In 1973, she passed away from a stroke at the Jell Nursing Home in Memphis. She was baptized shortly before her death, supposedly to please her sister, Daisy Johnson, although she wasn't religious at all in her life. I read that people think she maybe went to church like one time and it was to hear a gospel singer. In 1980, she was one of the first 20 artists inducted into the Blues Foundation's Hall of Fame.
0: Wow.
1: Her final resting place is at New Hope Baptist Church Cemetery in Walls. And in 1995, Bonnie Raitt paid for her headstone, and this is what it says. Lizzie Kidd Douglas Lawlers, a.k.a. Memphis Minnie. The hundreds of sides Minnie recorded are the perfect material to teach us about the blues. For the blues are at once general and particular, speaking for millions, but in a highly singular individual voice. Listening to Minnie's songs, we hear our fantasies, her dreams, her desires, that we will hear them as if they were our own. Oh. Yeah, that's nice. To wrap up, I share this in their book, Woman with Guitar. Paul and Beth Groans wrote that many quote, never laid her guitar down until she could literally no longer pick it up. And another random fun fact is that she once lived at 1355 Adelaide Street in Memphis, which is still there at the time that I saw this. Oh, cool. And yeah. also Jefferson Airplane recorded her song, Me and My Show for Blues, on their first album, Jefferson Airplane Takes Off.
0: That's kind of cool. Nice. So yeah, Memphis Mini. Memphis Mini. That's sweet.
1: And so I'm going to post various links if you want to read more about her. If you want to listen to her music, I'm posting that on show notes, which is com slash ladies two the number two Did that work
0: that's what i was thinking well you might be happy to know that i also looked up research on a woman who was also a musician oh really yes wow. <laughs> so we both picked musicians for i didn't know we had a theme that's ladies cool. night yes the woman i picked was julia Britton hooks
1: yes I've mentioned her briefly before.
0: Yeah, she's got a great history. Her full maiden name is Julia Ann Amanda Moorhead Britton. Wow, (laughs) I love people with long names. Yeah, people know her as Julia Britton Hooks. And people also know her as the Angel of Beale Street, which we'll get to in a a moment. Okay. Julia Ann Amanda Moorhead Britton was born in 1852. (laughs) And the slave state of Kentucky, though her parents were both freed African American. Her father was a carpenter, and her mother, she, her mother was a slave when she was a, a child, as she grew up as a slave to someone related to her father. And her father was a Kentucky statesman, Thomas F. Marshall. Oh. We had talked about. Uh, Robert Church and how even though he was half black half white his father didn't educate him in this case with Laura she was well educated and on top of that she's she's a very gifted singer and musician so when she got older and had children she encouraged and instilled the love of music into her children and Julia particularly picked up that gift she's kind of known as a, a music prodigy like she really, She's really gifted in that department. She really took that from her mom, and her and her mom would perform together uh, in parlor concerts for wealthy white families. And I guess the right uh, southern word would be aristocrats, <laughs> which I don't ever know oh. people call aristocrats, but <laughs> in the books they say <laughs> they they performed for aristocrats. Oh well. Wow. And yeah, she like I said, she was kind of known as a music prodigy because she could perform some of the most complex piano pieces of some really well-known composers. Wow. And so it wasn't just I guess overall the big picture is this family was just really well-known and really well-respected. Julie's younger sister ended up becoming the first African-American physician in Kentucky and her brother was a famous jockey. His name's Tom Britton if anyone is interested in jockeys <laughs> can look him up. What kind of jockey Rebecca? I assume that to be the guy, the one that rides a horse. Okay. Just (laughs) check Because this is Kentucky. (laughs) So, yeah. But, okay, so back to Julia. When she's 18, she enrolled at Berea College, uh, which made her one of the first women of any race to attend college in the state of Kentucky, which I thought was cool.
1: Wow. Of any, the first woman, period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
1: Uh
0: Uh-huh. Of that state, yeah. And while she was a student from eighteen seventy 1870 to eighteen seventy two, she taught music at the school. And that made her the first African American to teach white students at Berea College. And then she graduated in the class of eighteen seventy four as the second African American female graduate of Berea. Wow. Yeah. So she's definitely in the Berea. Wait, how
1: did someone get ahead of her? Oh wait, the second African American graduate. So the sec so uh just one person.
0: Yeah, one person was before her. But she was still the first faculty member for Berea, first African-American. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. She taught music, naturally, because that was her gift. Yeah, so in uh, 1872, Julia moved to Greensville, Mississippi. Shout out. Isn't that where you're from? Yeah, I'm from Greenville, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That's where she moved in 1872. Wow. Yes. Did you know her? I
1: had no idea. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I had no idea (laughs)
0: It was 1872. I'm no, sh- I'm I sure did, didn't definitely meet. didn't
1: know her, but I also had no idea. Yes, I was so excited about this.
0: Yes, um, she taught school in um, what school? You know what? I didn't find the name of the school. It just talked about how she taught school there in Greenville, Mississippi. Hmm. Okay. And she met her, met and married a man by the name of Sam Wordles, but lost him the following year to. Yellow fever. Aww. I know it. In Greenville? Yeah.
1: Oh, I didn't know.
0: I don't know what his background was. Maybe he was a commuter or something, or traveler, I mean. And he did get yellow fever and passed away. And after his passing, she moved to Memphis in 1876. So that did make me wonder if maybe he was somehow connected to Memphis or something.
1: Or maybe it just kind of went, went around the whole South. I just
0: never knew. Yeah. Or something. I bet Uh, it did. But it just really affected Memphis in particular. But yeah, she moved to Memphis. And this is how she obviously came to be known as the Angel Beale Street. Because in Memphis, there is a street named Beale Street. And this was the music. Really? Yeah. So Beale Street is in Memphis. And this is basically the (laughs) musician's paradise. People called her the Angel Beale Street also because she became known for her local social service work. And uh, we'll get into that more in a little bit. She soon married her second husband, Charles Hooks. That's where the, the name comes from. And she was not hesitant to actively protest against racism and inequality, which occasionally led her to getting arrested and fined. And probably one of the most famous instances is in 1881, she was arrested at a Memphis theater because she refused to move from the colored balcony where she was sitting. She was sitting in the white balcony. And so she's arrested and escorted by a couple police and fined five dollars, which is just such an injustice because of how much of a musician she was. Like she should be able to sit in a nice seat at the Memphis Theater, but you know that's not how the times were. So in 1883, her and somebody by the name of Anna Church opened the Litz L I S Z T Mullard Club. that's hard. Yeah, that's a tough (laughs) name there. They opened that to create opportunities and education for the Black youth of the South. With the creation of this club, she was able to raise money to provide musically gifted Black students to study music on a scholarship. That happened because of her and that club. And in 1891, Julia founded and became a charter member of the Orphans and Old Folks Home Club on Hernando Street, where she purchased 25 acres And she was able to pay off that debt three years later by performing concerts, uh, which was really... Yeah, that was some serious devotion. And the purpose of that organization was to provide accommodations for orphans and elderly African-American women. So she did that. And it keeps going. In 1892, she founded the Hooks School of Music and the Hooks Cottage School in response to the poor public education that Black youth received in Memphis. And, would you believe... I'm about to insert a Where's Waldo here. Would you believe the Hook School of Music produced distinguished student musicians such as Sidney Sydney Woodward, Nell Hunter, and drumroll, father of the blues? WC Handy. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. WC Handy. And another connection for Super. the past podcast is The school was also an auditorium that Robert R. Church Senior built, which is a cool little connection. What? Uh huh.
1: That is a cool connection. Yeah. Man, she is not playing around.
0: No, she's such a. She is like,
1: here's a problem. I'm just gonna solve it. Okay. Because society's
0: not. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. It's like she saw a (laughs) need in Memphis. It's like she came here because this was music, musicians' paradise, and she was passionate about everything else, because she was also passionate in education. I don't know. She really made a difference with what she did. Now, bringing her husband back in, Charles, her and her husband together administered the detention home for young African-American lawbreakers. That was from 1902 until 1917, which is unfortunately because one of the detainees killed her husband, which is sad. But that didn't stop her from continuing and helping and advising the troubled youth with their problems. She kept at it. She kind of committed to it and stayed devoted to that. And then in 1909, she became involved in the NAACP. She participated in the suffrage movement, helping women gain the right to vote, and served as president of the Lexington Women's Improvement Club in Kentucky. So she also stayed active in Kentucky, which is awesome. Wow. So if you're wondering what the relation to Benjamin Hooks is... I'm sure people are by now. Yeah, that would be her grandson. Benjamin Hooks is her grandson. And he remembers her being arrested <laughs> because she disobeyed Jim Crow laws, which I thought was cool to remember your grandma as being like a rebel. Yeah, and uh, and that's what she was. And he carried on the family
1: tradition mm-hmm. of working towards civil rights. Yeah, and her her sons. We I talked a little bit about her sons on the Mount Zion Cemetery episode. If anyone wants to hear about them,
0: yeah. So look at all these connections.
1: Yeah, they're pretty cool, too.
0: Yeah, lots of references. Julia, I don't have a good um, book on her to read. I didn't look that up. But obviously, go to show notes, memphistypehistory.com slash ladies2. And we'll include the links of extra reading material to look up. And uh, and a link to the Zion Cemetery would probably be good.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. so you can hear more, and photos, and music. Are there any, like, recordings of her music or anything that you know of?
0: mm And for her, I think um, mm-hmm. her skill set definitely, it seems like, was in the piano. But it would be really great to, to just know, like, what she did when she taught. What were her methods and... I don't know. You just think about like how much people can be inspired and motivated by their teachers. And the fact that we have three really well-known students come from her school, a school that she started, you know, Uh, I think that just says a lot. Yeah. If I could go back, you know, that question people ask, they say, if you could go back and meet one person from the dead, who would it be? I never really had an answer, but after doing research on her, I kind of thought, oh, she would be it she'd be that person that I'd want to go meet.
1: Yeah, for real. Oh, cool. Thanks for telling me about her. That was awesome. Yeah,
0: I love that we both had musicians. I liked it. To talk about.
1: I know. Accidentally had a theme.
0: We should see if we can put all five uh, versions of, um, (laughs) what was that song called? Oh, Bumblebee? Yes. Bumblebee. (laughs) That might be overkill.
1: We'll see. We'll have to check the page load time on that. Yeah. Everyone can go listen and tell us what your favorite one is. Mm -hmm. Well, here's to the ladies, and here's to our special ladies for February as well.
0: You know, if we keep this ladies' night thing going, we should see if anyone has some recommendations.
1: Yes, actually, go ahead, send us your recommendations. I, I'm up for a third round. I like ladies' night. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, this is
0: Memphis Type History, the podcast. We like your type. You've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. It would mean so much to us if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. Want to be part of Memphis Type History and
1: get behind-the-scenes content, merch, and more? Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash memphistypehistory. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot
0: com slash History. Find more Memphis Type history on our blog at memphistypehistory.com, on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as Memphis Type History, and on Twitter at Memphis Type.